All right, guys, I need to say something right up front. You guys are going to notice very quickly that the audio I'm using right now is going to dwarf the audio in the episode proper. For whatever reason, the Beats audio on my computer, which I have now disabled, was going absolutely schizophrenic during the recording of this episode, which was not noticed until after the episode was done. So I'm going to warn you guys, the audio levels and audio quality are all over the place in this. So please be a little forgiving on that. And it has been taken care of for future episodes. I apologize. And now Radiodrome. Radio Drome. Hey guys, it's Radio Drome. Josh Hadley here. You all know me and love me. I know you do. Mm-hmm. You can hear uh, Mumble Jones there. <laughs> and the Marquis de Suede is with us as well. <laughs> really? You couldn't have like over-enunciated to go the opposite of what Brad did? We're just Why saying, are you making us record this at 3 in the morning? We're really <laughs> tired. Because this is on my schedule, damn it. We're going to talk about something a little bit serious in a moment, but before that, do need to remind you guys, go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME to get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free mystery gift, and free U.S. shipping. Promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. The day before we record this one, and this wasn't supposed to be part of tonight's topic, Roger Ebert passed away, and I think that we need to talk about that. I didn't agree with Ebert on much. I did always respect him as a film critic, even when I really, really disagreed with him. Brad, I know you looked up to him a lot. I mean, hell, he's the inspiration for the snob. Yeah, there there wouldn't be the cinema snob if it wasn't Roger Ebert, and I don't mean that in like a negative way or out of hate, anger, spite or, or, or anything like that it was a lampoon it's it's a spoof and you know in order to spoof something you know you you spoof and, and poke fun at what you love you at least have to know about the topic in order to kind of lampoon it like that and that's what i did with that character so yeah that's kind of hit me pretty hard a little bit <laughs> it's had me bummed out i think the thing that should bum you out even worse is that the his last review is the host Actually, it, well, I found out today that that's not true. Uh, he's got a review that he hasn't put up yet, and it's for... I mean, it's something I'm sure I'm probably not going to like, but at least it's something that he liked. It's the new Terrence Malick movie. To the Wonder. To the Wonder. <laughs> which, at least he went out with something that he really liked from a director that he really likes. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I wrote a little thing on it on the website, and it was hard to write honestly like it, it really was well if you um, think about it brad it is i mean we had cisco pass a couple of years ago and this really does signify an end of an era i mean we all grew up watching cisco and ebert and the movies yeah or, or, or coming attractions or whatever version that they were uh, doing at the time we all grew up with them and just think within 10 years they're just going to be a weird one of those Oh, that's a 2013 joke. If you weren't around in 2013, you won't even know who they are. Well, like, uh, luckily he 
Roger Ebert, though, he really did use social media to his advantage. He almost had sort of a second career with that. A lot of young people really do know who Roger Ebert is because of his political articles, because of his Twitter account, because of things like that. I mean, he really kept in tune with, with technological advances to keep himself in the limelight, to keep himself popular. And I agree with what you said. I said this on my site, too. I didn't always agree with the guy. I disagreed with him a lot. It's the mark of a really great writer and a really great critic and somebody who really, really knows his stuff, knows movies, loves movies, to where you could read something that you would disagree with him on, but one, you would still respect the man, and two, looking at it from his point of view, he was articulate enough to where you could at least see where he was coming from, why he, why he personally would like or dislike something. Yeah, it wasn't just like haters gonna hate kind of reviewing. No, it, it wasn't. But there were times where I, I thought it was, I kind of thought he was irrational, like his Night of the Living Dead review, where he doesn't even review the movie, he just reviews the audience he's with, or Brad, the famous I Spit on Your Grave review that we played audio of back in ep- episode 37. Of course. Where, you know, of the, he, the crazy man who, as you pointed out in your video, may or may not actually have existed. Of course there would be things like that, but, you know, and, and, and no, I, I don't agree with that. I don't even I don't even agree with using that as a means to review a movie. I mean, there were times where I thought he took things a little too far, but when you actually look at that review for I Spit It On Your Grave, it is well written, and also, it is funny. The guy was really, really good about talking about stuff he didn't like. Again, even if you disagreed with him, he gave zero stars to Caligula. Caligula is my favorite movie. And that's a funny review. And I don't mean funny in that, like, like, oh, this idiot didn't like this, my favorite movie. I don't mean it like that. I mean, it's genuinely funny. He was really good about talking about stuff he didn't like. Oh, like, I read his review for Freddy Got Fingered last night, and that was another funny review. Yeah, that was a funny review, and also, he was right. That movie sucks. At that, you know, at that point, I think Ebert had really kind of lightened up a little bit in getting really angry... At getting at getting really soapboxy about some stuff that he didn't like. For instance, uh, look at look at his review of Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, which is what inspired the cinema snob. Look at that review, and then look for, look at his review for Jason X. Okay, neither movie he liked at all. When he's reviewing Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, he's very soapboxy about it. He's talking about how you know this you know, people are going to go see this and they'll think there's nothing. There's no no point in life because you'll just get murdered and stabbed and blah, blah, blah. And then you look at his review for Jason X, which he didn't like. He was very lighthearted about how, how he didn't like it. You know, he was very calmed down about that whole genre at, at that point. There was really nothing soapboxy in his review for Jason X. It's just simply not his thing, you know. So he kind of joked a lot, really, in his review for it. It's a shame that he's gone he was a different kind of film critic that came up in a different era. Possibly that's the reason he hated exploitation the way he did. That was the kind of critic we looked for there. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, a couple of things. One, you know, I still, even uh, every week I went to his site to look and see what he reviewed. Every single week I did, up until he died. He even still, you know, he didn't like a lot of exploitation movies, but he did leave his mark. On exploitation, though, with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. 
and, and he those... was going to write, and he was going to make a, was it called Who Killed Bambi with Johnny Rotten that never got made for Russ yeah. Meyer? Who Killed Bambi, yeah, ex- exactly. So he did leave his mark on a couple of flicks, uh, two flicks that I like. Yeah, he, he certainly disliked a lot of other exploitation movies that that I that I really liked a lot. But, you know, he had a hand in making a couple of, the, in writing a couple of those. He gave a positive review to Devil and Miss Jones. I think he gave a positive review to Invasion of the Bee Girls. I mean, there's some that he liked. Not a lot. Some. I'm going to miss his reviews because I, there's not a whole lot of actual, you know, professional critics stuff that I've read beyond Ebert, actually. It's just Ebert and that's it. Yeah, because I never, I, uh, I'm not a Leonard Malton fan. I'm not a Rex Reed fan. I appreciate Gene Shalit's puns. Yeah, there's a lot of those other guys, I, I can't say I, I was, not that I dislike them personally. Well, Rex Reed, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's an ass. No, he was, he was the one that I still, Roger Ebert was the one that I still looked up to and consistently read and followed all, all the way up until he died. And unfortunately, we have to move from that into tonight's topic. The 2000 to 2013, 13 years of film. Okay, you guys already know I'm going to say it. I don't have a whole lot of positive to say about that, this era. Sure. But I think things changed in this era more than they did in the 90s, and I'm not sure it was in the correct direction. You got the rise of remakes. I mean, remakes have been around since the beginning of film. I mean, I remember, I might have the years wrong, but... Wasn't London After Midnight, the one that was made in the 20s, a remake of the one that was made in the teens or something like that? So they've been doing remakes since the beginning of film. So I get that. That's fine. But I think you saw more remakes in the 2000s than you saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s combined. Combined? I I don't know about that. But mainstream-wise, yeah, I think we've gotten more remakes now than than we have uh, in the past, at least of movies that are very are were much more prominent, were much more popular, were much more much more successful. You know, you have a successful movie in the '80s, and hey, they're remaking it because uh, they want to print some cash. You see a lot more of that now than you than you did in in decades past. Well, yeah, you do see a lot of the remakes, but the big thing that I've seen more of in the 2000s are the let's make fun of everything. I mean, and it really started, I think, with the scary movie stuff. We stopped having an appreciation of the past in film, and in the 2000s it was the rise of like the Starsky and Hutch movie with Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. We're not going to remake this, we're going to make fun of it. No, no, movies did that before the 2000s. You had the Brady Bunch movie, you had the Dragnet movie. I forgot, um, about, I forgot about Brady Bunch being the 90s. Yeah, you're right about that. forgot about mo- that being 90s. Movies did that before then. And, and Starsky and Hutch is an example of something that was ripe for parody. I saw the Starsky and Hutch movie. I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't think it was mean-spirited. I thought it kept... I, I thought that it was a comedy, but still kept things in the parody spirit of the of the original series. I, I, I didn't, think, I didn't th- see that. I just didn't find it funny at all. That was my, my issue with it. Well, and then in the 2000s, you also had, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because this will be a whole separate episode on the MPAA. 
you had the rise of the PG-13 horror film. All right, Brad, go. No, the PG-13 horror film. It's the worst thing you could do to your... Well, I should be more specific. Like, PG-13 horror film doesn't instantly mean bad. In the 70s, we had horror movies that were rated PG. Just because a horror film is rated PG-13, that doesn't instantly make it bad. There's there's plenty of good horror films out there that are rated PG or PG-13. Here's where it goes wrong. When it starts out as an R and they cut it down to a PG-13 to get the little teeny boppers in the theater, that's when you've done something wrong. And that really puts you in the mindset of the people who put out the movie. And it's not a good mindset to be in. It's actually really corrupt. And also, the PG-13 slasher film. It doesn't... It kind of defies the point of the slasher film, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That defies the entire point of a slasher film. That's that's like releasing a comedy and cutting out all the funny parts. I'm sorry. Slasher films just by design is an R-rated genre, just like porn is an X-rated genre. You can't have a PG-13 slasher film. You you just can't. And when you release one like that, again, that puts you that shows you what they were thinking when they put the movie out. Yes, every yes, every movie wants to make money. But you know, there's doing that right and there's doing it wrong. And when you're cutting stuff down to a PG thirteen, whether it's a slasher film, whether it's anything, whether you, when you're cutting that down to a PG thirteen, you're doing it wrong. I'm sorry. I can't stand PG-13 horror films, and I'll usually avoid them, unless I know for a fact they were, it's a good movie that happens to be rated PG-13. Oh yeah, look at like a lot of like paranormal horror films, you know, horror films like that that rely more on suspense than they do blood and guts and really graphic stuff like that. Movies like that have been, have been, you had plenty of movies like that in the 70s that were rated PG and they were fine movies. You know, a horror movie doesn't always have to be an R, it just depends on the kind of horror film, and it also depends on what its intent was and how it started out. If it started out as an R, it should be released as an R, it shouldn't be released as a PG-13. Guillermo del Toro's produced some great movies that are like that, that are PG-13 horror films, but they're still good movies, like The Orphanage is one he produced. I think part of the problem, it's like what Brad said, but I think it actually goes beyond what you pointed out, Brad, of the PG-13 horror film, or, or even the PG-13 just action film, like, what was it, Lockout, the one with Guy Pierce from where they last the, year? Where they dropped the F-bomb in the trailer. Right, and then they cut it out in the movie, and the DVD comes out, and it's still PG-13. That, to me, says we're dumbing down not just this film, we care more about your money than we do about anything else we're going to dumb down the entire genre because when one film does that and it's successful what that says to all the others is winning formula copy us yeah that, that's it they they always pay attention to that whenever some stupid thing has been edited down to a pg-13 and it happens to do well which hey jokes on them pg-13 lockout did not do well but they never pay attention to it when the r-rated movie does well they're like, oh, that must be a fluke or something like that. But, oh, hey, this one's PG-13 and did really good. Oh, that means the rest of them should be like this. I blame Jerry Bruckheimer for that crap. That shit really started with him. The advent of the all-action movies are rated PG-13 thing. I'm, I, I'm sorry. You know, movies used to have balls, and they died with Don Simpson. 
only in that decade would you have a movie called Triple X that's rated PG-13. I always thought that was weird, too. Before I saw the trailer for Triple X, I just saw the poster. I'm like, so Vin Diesel's doing a porno now? What the hell? To me, it castrates the horror. Like like you pointed out of cutting out all the parts that, well, the movie's designed for, not even that. You're teasing your audience. It, it's like it's like cinematic blue balls. You know, you're teasing your audience and then going, nah, you don't need to see the knife go in their back. It's implied the knife went in their back. Good enough, right? If it's a slasher film, no. Not performing to expectations in the last couple of years. So I think the backlash has really started against that. Of the PG-13 horror films? I should freaking hope so. Like, uh, that stupid... Uh prom night remake that they released with a pg-13 yeah there's a lot of freaking idiots out there so it actually did it had a decent opening weekend but nobody liked it like even even like 13 year olds who went to go see it didn't like it well the one that i'm thinking of it maybe not horror in the traditional sense like a slasher but remember the cave with with cole hauser i didn't i i know the movie but i didn't see it i, I kind of thought okay they're 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 editing around the swear word in the trailer. They're going to say it in the movie. No, they don't. They cut away from it. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Should we bring up PG-13 Die Hard? No. There's there's PG-13 Die Hard and there's PG-13 Aliens and Alien vs. Predator. The first PG-13 movie in either franchise. That was a slap in the face. (laughs) Granted, that wasn't the only problem with that movie. <laughs> no, 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 but I, I think but, that was indicative of the problem in the making of that movie. Y- you're exactly right. Like, of all the problems with that movie, that was that was among the most insulting. Because, okay, if that same movie was an R, yeah, it would still be bad, of course. It, it just puts you in the mind of the people who put it out there. Yeah, again, I'm repeating myself again, but yeah, we all know that that they, they want to make money. Yeah, yeah, of course we do. That's It's been that way for, for a long freaking time. There's doing it right and there's doing it wrong. And an Alien vs. Predator PG-13 movie is just a slap in the face to the people who you want to put in seats. And again, it did well, but guess what? No one liked it. The second film went back to a hard R, and, and was actually everyone hated a wor- it worse. And that and that yeah. was actually a worse movie. It was. Look, look. I'm not saying that. Again, I'm not saying that the P- Alien versus Predator, the fact that it was a PG-13, is the only reason it was bad. Oh God, no, 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 no. But I mean that 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 tells you right there the fact that the second one they release and it's an R. So okay, it's a little less insulting. They they released it with an R. All right. But as a movie, it was way worse. I mean, okay, the movie has its moments, but I mean, we're going back to the 90s here. I was pretty mad about Mortal Kombat being a PG-13. Yeah, if there was ever a video game movie designed for an R, it was Mortal Goddamn Kombat. Well, see, I wasn't because it meant I got to see it in theaters. Well, I mean, okay, the, the filmmakers have always courted that teen audience like Alex was at the time Mortal Kombat came out in the 90s. They were courting, they, they've always wanted to court this teen audience. Uh-huh. But at the same time, they've never been so blatant about it. But before they would try to market the movie, an R-rated movie like Robocop, that was marketed 
to teenagers, even though legally most teenagers wouldn't have been able to see that oh, yeah. movie. I had the toys. Yeah, you had the toys, you had the Rambo movies. These movies were marketed towards teens uh-huh. and not dumbed down. Because yeah. they knew most theaters were going to let the kids in anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, even uh, the theater. Look, I know it's different everywhere in the world. I There are people who have left comments who have said that, that like, 40-year-olds get ID'd and stuff like that. Oh, not in Springfield. <laughs> I think yeah, I think last night's midnight screening of Evil Dead is a good example of that. I get a text from Brad right before the movie. There are so many juggalos at this screening. Oh, <laughs> oh God, that must have been a rough, rough night then. So in the 2000s, you also saw, and, and I, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because Brad and I beat this into the ground. The rise of CG where it doesn't need to be. Brad, uh-huh. CG blood. What the hell, man? I don't even, do I even have to say anything? All I have to say is the term CG blood. That's all I have to say. Why would you do that? It looks stupid. It looks fake. It looks stupid. All that says is that you're lazy. You are a lazy filmmaker. Yeah, and it's not just CGI blood. They'll CGI everything out of just sheer laziness. It's not even artistic nowadays. The CGI sheep in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back that cost more than getting a real sheep, but it was just easier. There were, I've seen CGI grass in movies. It just and if it's if it's done if it's done artistically if it's done to actually go hand in hand with okay like something like Hugo, a movie like that where it it actually has some artistic merit to it. That's that's one thing. It's another thing if you're CGIing gorillas in a zoo in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, or yes. you're, Or you're CGIing a car making a right turn. If you're CGIing things that we did all the time since the freaking dawn of cinema, I'm sorry, it looks terrible. Since we're talking CGI, let's go to its uh, bastard inbred cousin, 3D really did not think 3D would last as long as it did. I mean, I saw it as a fad, the same as I saw it in 83 when it was at its peak. I really this, can't believe 3D is still going, Brad. I, I am and I'm not. I am in the sense that not a lot of people seem to like it, but yet it's still going. And sometimes does well, sometimes it doesn't. But I'm not in the sense that it's not as... It's not as narrow as it was back in the 80s and back before then. When 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 it was around in the 80s, it was it was for very gimmicky films. It was for horror films, it was for exploitation movies, it was for like kind of sophomoric comedies and stuff like that. It isn't just that now. Now you have movies that are Oscar contenders. You have movies that are Oscar winners that are being released in 3D. It's a different kind of 3D. It's a much more atmospheric 3D when done right. Problem is, not a lot of them do it right. A lot of them, they look like crap. They look blurry. They give people... I personally don't get headaches off of it, but it gets it gives a lot of people headaches. It, it just seems very unnecessary. And then when you have a movie that comes out that's the kind of 3D that I personally prefer and really like and have a lot of fun with, like Dread, like like Drive Angry, uh, that just that used it to throw stuff at the screen and just have a blast. I like that kind of 3D, you know? That's like, you know, when I was a kid and watching Friday the 13th 3D and stuff like that. I, I think that's kind of fun. 
But and then when you have a movie like that, that not only is it being really gimmicky with it, but also looks gorgeous. It really does. The 3D in Dread was outstanding. Same with Drive Angry. And then the, those, those are two, two movies, movies I wish I could have seen in 3D. But you and also got to remember, two, Brad. Hang, hang on, hang on. Okay. And those two movies bombed. But you also got to remember, those two movies were also designed to be in 3D, and they weren't some crappy Clash of the Titans post-conversion kind of 3D. Absolutely, absolutely. That leads me to my other point is, I think 3D is a crutch today when it should be an enhancement. I think they are looking at a very, very narrow window by the fact that 3D TVs, in reality, don't really work. They are basically putting all of their money into the theatrical run. Screw you on DVD. Screw you on video on demand. If you don't see it in the theater, too bad. I think I, they really thought this would work. Get everyone into the theater. We need to see it in the theater. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Oh, wait, this sucks. I don't care. Yeah, like, I I, I can't really attest to how it looks on TV. I looked at, well, it, when I was at a store one time, I looked at a 3D TV. I, I wasn't going to buy it, but I was just, they had the glasses there, and I just had a curiosity. And I looked at it, and it looked okay, but that that gave me a headache, actually. I, I don't get headaches when I see 3D movies in the theater. That gave me a headache, looking at it on a television set. They do it, too, so they can jack up the ticket prices. Somewhat for foreign sales. Like, the, the reason that Dread was shot in 3D and released basically only in 3D was for the foreign sales. The foreign backers, because 3D is a much bigger hit in Europe than it is in the U.S. That's they right. They said, we yeah. have to have this for the th- for the European market. The American market was almost secondary to the to the backers of this movie. So you got to remember, we're bitching about it not really being a hit over here. You go over to Italy or France, and they'll go, no way, these things are amazing in 3D, and they're doing terrific over there. This is true. I forgot about that. I forgot that they do tend to do well, do, do a little bit better over there. Sometimes you'll have one that looks great. Hugo looked great in 3D. That was really damn good 3D. Uh, but for every Hugo, there's like eight Last Airbenders. Oh, 3D re-releases you see nowadays. Um, oh, you like, mean like, you mean like Jurassic, Jurassic Park? Park. Yeah, that's another thing that 3D is. I want to say corrupted, but I think corrupted is the right term. I, I think it allows not only for a double dip on DVD because they always re-release re-release the. They've already said Jurassic Park 3D will be getting a DVD release. But it allows them not only a double dip in the theater, but a double dip on home formats, too. It's more of them just going, you're a consumer, and that's all you are. Now consume. Well, I'm fine with re-releases. I, I'm, I'm fine with re-releases, because I wouldn't mind seeing Jurassic Park in the theater again. I, I like Jurassic Park. I would rather, I, I honestly, I'd rather them re-release movies than remake them. You know, just re-release the original. Yeah, I mean, like on the downside of that, we're only getting we're only getting a 3D version of it in the theater, so that's kind of a bummer. Because <laughs> I don't want I don't conversions don't look very good. I I have heard though that well, okay, Sarah and Irving, I sent them to Jurassic Park 3D, and and they said it was it was worth going only just to see it in the theater again. They said the 3D wasn't very good. And it was the same when we went to go see Phantom Menace. That was like the worst freaking 3D I've ever seen in my life. But I have I have gotten a lot of comments that have said that 
if you go see it if you go see it on an on an IMAX screen in that kind of 3D format, it actually looks really really good. I mean, granted, that sucks that in order to get that in order to get the good quality of that, you have to see it on an IMAX screen, and then if you don't, you're stuck seeing a really crap 3D version of it. But re-releases in and of themselves, I don't have a problem with. What do you think are some of the other big things that came about in the 2000s in filmmaking, good or bad? Like, I would put up there, everyone knows my aversion to digital video. I don't think that was a positive thing for for film into the 2000s. On the same token, I've heard some people, when they, they knew we were inevitably going to be getting to this when we started doing this series, they, they said... What about the rise of the direct-to-video sequel? Oh, please. They've been oh. doing that since, oh, the, they've been doing that since the 80s. That's not a 2000s thing. That's yeah. not new. That, that's not new, but at the same time, if we're going to talk about if we're going to talk about the rise of remakes when that's been around forever, we should probably talk about that too because that is has been way more prominent in the past 10 or 15 years. Yeah, the, the direct-to-video. In some cases, the made for theatrical release and dumped on video, which you didn't see as often in the 90s. You saw it occasionally, but nowadays you'll, like, the whole, the Joe Dante movie. I don't think a Joe Dante flick made in the 80s or 90s would have sat on the shelf for three years before just being quietly released to home video. Do you? No, I I wouldn't freaking think so. I haven't seen the whole, but no, I wouldn't. (laughs) But, I mean, that's back when, of course, he was more so in his prime. But no, no, that, that I, I couldn't. I can't imagine something like that happening back then. Well, and then you also have when that, with coming to the the direct to DVD, the direct to home video format, you also have inevitably we have to talk about the lowering of budgets. I mean, you've got these sequels, the direct to video sequels in the '90s mm-hmm. had sometimes five times the budgets of the same kind of production that's being released to direct to video today. Because it, it, it's all just there for a title cash-in now. They're not even trying. I mean, when when Witchcraft 10 looks better than your direct-to-video sequel of a Disney film, <laughs> that's wrong, man. But what do you think about the rise of budgets, though? Because on the other end of that, we have movies that come out every summer with one, one fifty, two hundred million dollar budgets. And you also have the the rising of what is considered low budget. I mean, I remember even going back to 98 with American History X, only a $9 million budget. Oh, my God. <laughs> they're, make it, they're making a big deal about that with uh, Pain and Gain. It's a Michael Bay film with only a $25 million budget. I actually heard him in an interview say he's going back to his low budget roots for Pain and of- Gain. Oh, of it. 20 million's low budget? Screw <laughs> you! For Michael of Bay, 20 million is slumming it. Of 25 I mean, I, props, I guess, but I mean, that's not, like, that's... <laughs> Look, I make low-budget movies. That's not, I mean, that's lower budget. That doesn't mean low budget. That just means lower budget. <laughs> Well, I think Michael Bay is indicative of a bigger problem, the spoiled filmmaker. I mean, yes, we've always had the Michael Chiminos that budget doesn't matter, we're going to do whatever we want, the company will keep sending me checks. You've always had that, but then you've also got people that, and this one man exemplifies everything that's wrong with this, the James Cameron philosophy. You look at his early films, 
They are incredibly economical. $14 million for Aliens, a movie with no natural sets. Everything had to be built. Costumes, the all the special effects, the models, all that for only $14 million, which, again, I'm kind of, for the, the scale of that picture, that was a low budget. And then you look at Avatar, where he's just jerking off into his bank account. That's what ego will do to you. Uh, ego hit him hard with that <laughs> after making Titanic the most expensive movie of the time. Almost then, all practical. And then it also going on to being at the time the most successful movie of all time. That Ego will do that to you. That's why we got Avatar. I will say, yeah, the conceited filmmakers, like, well, spoiled is the, the better term. Like James Cameron got his ego, but Michael Bay still, uh, that is the one thing with the 2000s. I mean, he started in the 90s, but Armageddon in what, like 98? And ev- after that, the 2000s have just been copying Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 movies that aren't even directed by Michael Bay look like a Michael Bay film. Crystal Skull does not look like a Steven Spielberg film. It looks like a Michael Bay film. Like, you could have told me Michael Bay directed that movie, and I would have believed you. And also, it's like we said last week, how, like, in the late 90s, and it's gone off, and, and it's just grown more and more and more each year, suddenly it's just become, summer blockbusters have just become a, a spectacle film. And I'm not saying that all of them are bad. I, I, I'm not. But that's usually consistently what a lot of them are, are just big, light shows of CGI splooge on screen and bam, 10 bucks, 10 bucks a ticket. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that makes all of them bad. And I don't, as much as I don't like CGI, I'm not going to dislike something just because it's got CGI in it. I'm not. Would I rather it have been done differently? Yes, of course, but you, you can still have a fine movie that's got plenty of CGI in it. That's how I am really with the spectacle film. That's how I am with movies that have a lot of CGI in it. It isn't so much that it has it in there because I won't dislike something just because it's got it in there. It's how it does with the rest of it, how how it does with, with other things too. And, you know, even how it does with the CGI. That's kind of how I look at that. Rampant political correctness. Do I even need to bring up what happened that first year after September 11th? Oh, everything was recalled about? You, you couldn't use terrorism, you had to CGI out the Twin Towers and Zoolander and TV shows, and wasn't that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie pushed back a while because it was about terrorists or something, Brad? Collateral, collateral damage. Collateral, that's it? No, no, collateral damage. Collateral damage, okay. Yeah, collateral was the Jamie Foxx time. They're, they're, they're more politically correct now than ever, such as like, the Akira move, that live-action Akira train wreck they've been trying to make for a good decade now. Yeah. In the comic, in the other movie, in the 1986 movie, it takes place in Japan. Fine. So it's an all-Japanese gang. Well, now you've got... They've said there'll be a black gang member and a female gang member and a Latino gang member and an Asian gang member and a white gang member because we have to represent all races. That kind of idiotic political correctness that says, we don't care about the source material. It needs to be all-inclusive. I'm with you, man. I think I detest 
political correctness. I detest it about as much as I do reality television. It's another gift the last 10 years have really been splooging on our faces. Speaking um, of splooging, though, political correctness has actually affected the re-releases of porno films from the 80s. The DVD of the Dark Brothers' New Wave Hookers is censored on DVD for them using the racial epithets chink and nigger are beeped out in the porno. In a porno. In that could only happen in the 2000s, I think, don't you? Yeah, that could only happen in the 2000s. Even that seems, even that seems stretching it for this decade. I, political correctness is the death of a lot of things, namely comedy. Sometimes it just, it backfires because you'll have something in a movie that will, that may, that I guess reminds some studio executive of a real life event and then they go back and they change it, but then they announce that they're changing it and Gangster why squad. they're, yeah, Gangster Squad. They announce why they're changing it and what they're changing it to. So now you've just, if somebody wasn't even thinking about that, now it's in their head. Now you made it way more obvious. A better example of that is changing uh, the title from Na Neighborhood Watch to The Watch because yeah. of the because of the Trayvon Martin thing. Who in their right mind was thinking about that when they saw the trailer for that? I'll tell you what I was thinking about when I saw the trailer. Hey, that movie looks like shit. Well, and Brad, there's something else that the 2000s brought, and this affects you personally. Midnight screenings became the norm. Oh, well, that I don't have a problem with. I didn't think you'd have a problem with it, but it's something that was the norm. When I was growing up, a midnight screening was... Either for a movie like a something weird like El Topo or, or yeah. something cult like Rocky Horror or on a special occasion like on Halloween, my theater would have a back-to-back -back midnight screening of the, like the, the one year I saw it was Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, and Hellraiser 2. And this is years after those movies had left theaters. Yeah, it was like a special event. You still have that. You still have that nowadays. I mean, There's not just... near me. My theaters never do anything like that. The midnight screenings are only Dark of the Moon and Star Trek and stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. The, the you'll have midnight screens screenings of those, but here in town we have. Uh, well, maybe not right here in Springfield, but uh, you go to play. You go to like college towns and bigger cities and stuff like that. You still find that. You still find that all the time. Well, and then you also saw. The, the kind of dumbing down of movies on TV. And I'm not talking about TV movies. I mean, like, look at, Brad, when we went through that old 1990 HBO Cinemax guide I had. Look at how many amazing movies were on back when there was only those two channels in that one guide. Now, good luck finding a Chuck Norris movie. Good, not, good luck finding a Seagal movie on one of the pay channels. Cable TV, they only seem to, to go through the last decade or so when it comes to dredging up their movies. When's the last time you just randomly saw an, I, I'm leaving out a channel like Turner Classic Movies which is just specifically devoted to this. Yeah. But like HBO or Stars, where you'd find some obscure 1970s sci-fi flick on at 3 in the morning. On like uh, HBO proper and Cinemax proper I can't tell you the last time I've seen that. Granted, I don't have HBO or Cinemax right now. I did when I was a kid. I did until I was like 20, but I don't now. But sometimes when I'm flipping through the, the guide and I skim across them, 
you will find you will still find stuff like that on like some of their sub channels like Encore Action or HBO Action or Encore Sci-Fi Fantasy. You'll see some of those on those channels, but actual like HBO proper, I I, I couldn't tell you the last time. I I, I don't know. I, I I don't have I don't really have HBO anymore. Yeah, we also lost we also lost some really good former movie channels that we used to have, like AMC. Back wow. when they used to remember when they used to show movies uncut, wide yeah. screen with no commercials, and they were they, actually American movie classics. No, they not so much. They would still. I always picked apart. Why are you having a Godzilla marathon on American movie classics? Ah, oh, never mind. I don't care. It's Godzilla. They've given us good television series. I'll give them that. Oh, Breaking Bad is amazing. Yeah, they've given us. They've stepped. They. Yeah, they. It's one of the better channels to find television series on. Honestly, but who, but one who, thing, who wants to watch a Friday the Thirteenth movie on AMC? Oh well, you, well, that's not something. When I was when I was five years old, I would see a Friday the Thirteenth movie on the USA Network. That's not. Uh, no, no, that one I'll call you on. They were different edits back when I worked at the TV stations. We had the old syndicated copies of some slasher movies, and then the new ones that came down in the two thousands. The new ones were cut farther. The ones yeah, you, the dude. ones you grew up watching on USA actually had more blood and sexual situations in them than the same versions that AMC or your local Fox channel okay, okay. show on a Saturday afternoon. Okay, you can't call me on that because, one, at the end of the day, they're still edited. They are, but not as much. That's what, so? That's like, oh, you shot me not as much as the other day. Like, it's still, <laughs> ba- it's still bad. And the other thing, yeah, and the other thing is if you're watching Friday the 13th at five years old, edited or not, it's still going to scare a kid. Generally. Friday the 13th for a PG-13. There you go. Um, oh, well, this was kind of fun. This is something I think that... I, I don't know. Maybe you would find this years ago, but I don't think so. Okay, I was watching... I think it was on the Hallmark Channel. I was watching a Cheers marathon. And in all the commercial breaks, they show, like... You know, the commercials that they show, like, stick around for more Cheers. And it's always the same clips that they use in every commercial break. And one of them was always Carla telling the uh, the dude who ran the restaurant above them. It, she was telling him to, like, kiss her butt. In every promo on there, in every commercial break, it was always that, like, you can kiss my butt, blah, blah, blah. Then that actual episode was on, that, and they bleeped her saying butt, even <laughs> though it's in every commercial break. <laughs> to advertise that they're showing episodes of Cheers, when it actually shows the episode, they bleeped the word "butt." Yeah, that that is something you saw more back when we were growing up. When you'd see something edited like that, it would usually be an overdub. Now, like she would have said "tush" or something like that. Now no, they it, just it was it a bleep or a silence? It was it was a silence. Because yeah, it, like. I remember watching Aliens when that debuted on ABC when they showed the director's cut for the first time. And I just remember, we're in some real pretty stuff now, man. You know, I I remember, or or, uh, Freddy running around calling everyone little brats. That's kind of funny. You little brat. (laughs) Yeah. Except in the case of Freddy. Because they stole his newspaper. (laughs) In the case of Freddy, it was actually Robert Englund's voice, though. So at least they got him to do his own looping for that. Yeah, I like, what about when you said this, and this isn't even 
this isn't even part of the last decade really but how like sometimes yeah you'll see like how when they shoot alternate footage where that's not as vulgar you know like where they're not did that yeah ghostbusters 2 when they showed that on comedy central did that but it's always funny when that happens like because the quality is like of that of those particular shots is severely decreased from the rest of the movie well, because they're usually coming from a VHS or beta source, and not, right. not the film print itself. Right. So, so you've got that, and well, and that's the other thing. And I've bitched about this before, so I'm an old man shaking a stick at the sky here. People in in this decade, or 13 years to be specific, they've grown too quality. They've they've grown to notice quality too much, and I mean physical film quality. They can't watch the beat up clearly taken off of a 16 millimeter print of a 35 millimeter movie on VHS that we, the three of us grew up watching uh-huh. to them. It's got to be digitally remastered widescreen in stereo sound, or there's no point even watching the movie. And that's unfortunate. It is. It's very unfortunate because there are certain films like in all honesty, the hammer films, they don't look right to me. Widescreen digitally remastered in stereo sound. I grew up watching those on a beat-up print that was faded in mono sound and full frame. That's the version I prefer. It gives the film more mood to me. I'm that way with slasher flicks. Uh, You know, I'm I'm that way with them, with the original Evil Dead. It looks, it's way moodier and creepier when it's when it's grainier, when it's a lot grainier and isn't like all polished and everything. It's it's it. Sometimes it just goes too far with that, like. I like I get it. I I certainly do, but in in some some movies I don't really want that. Like okay, I've got Halloween 3 on Blu-ray, which is worth picking up because it's got a crap load of extras on it. So it's worth picking up, but actually sitting there and watching the movie, you can see it, they've made it so clear that you can see the makeup on Tom Atkins' face. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to bring up. A lot of the special effects were not designed to be seen in HD. They yeah. were kind of they kind of made the effects or the makeups or whatnot to be hidden by the film grain. And when you do the digital noise reduction, all you do is bring out the flaws in the film, don't you think, Alex? Oh, very much so. And I was going to say with all the HD stuff, um, movies nowadays, especially horror movies, are just too clean. They, you know. Horror movies used to feel dirty. I mean, the film grain and stuff, but there was the feel of that older look to them. Now they're just so clean, it takes me out of it. The the slasher films especially, you know, they're too polished looking. They're too, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know, ambitious maybe is the right word. Uh, even though, I, actually, I don't really think a lot of them are that ambitious. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, you know what I mean. They're a little yeah. too polished looking and squeaky clean for their own good. That's a problem that I have with a lot of remakes, honestly. To use as an example, okay, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the the uh, the 2003, the Jessica Biel one. It's that movie had a lot of problems, but uh, namely, I it, again, it's it's just too neat and clean and tidy looking and and everything. I. I, that's just not what I prefer when it comes to a movie like that. It, it, it isn't. I'm not saying all horror films need to look like that, but something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. Well, it, it also leads to sort of a, a cinematic snobbery for those that did not grow up in our era because I've seen DVD reviews on 
on various websites that will look at like the, the that new Scream Factory they live. And they'll talk about, oh, the print has got this problem and this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at it and going, dude, you realize that this is actually a clearer, cleaner print than, it, than I saw it in the theater with, right? And you're bitching about it? Or how about the uh, option on uh, Grindhouse to take away the film crane? That is the dumbest extra of all time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. Brad Jones, where can people find you in this new digital age of 2013 that we couldn't have done in the 90s the way you do it? I'm uh, still at uh, cinemasnob.com. Geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me at the same geekjuicemedia.com as well as 1201beyond.com. And guess what? The links there work, assholes. Uh, yeah, only when are you going to the end of every show, Brad? But when nobody ever thought to check it, huh? My site. When are you going to fix the links on my site, motherfucker?